welcome to episode 16 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we catch up with Adam Miller. Adam is the host of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, Adam and I discuss the origins of our respective podcast. We also discuss our personal motivations for hunting, the evolution of Adam's trail camera strategy, figuring out the optimal time of the year to hunt each of Adam's hunting locations, the struggles of self-filming, the importance of glassing in western terrain, and the importance of hunting areas during that area's best time of the year. I really enjoyed this conversation and I found a lot of common ground with Adam being that most of our hunting experiences have taken place in Michigan. Adam's a first class dude. After the podcast, Adam stuck around to answer a lot of my personal questions about podcasting and offered a lot of suggestions to help me improve my podcast. And I believe that's a big part of the reason 99% of the hunting community is so great. There's a lot of people out there generally interested in helping other people and seeing them succeed. So Adam, if you listen to this, thanks again. If you haven't already checked out the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast, give them a listen because they're putting out a lot of great content. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Visit the Stealth Outdoors store to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear. Many states' archery season openers are literally just around the corner, and this is going to be your last chance to upgrade your mobile hunting setup before the opener. There's not a better product on the market for eliminating unwanted noise, and Stealth Outdoors manufactures an incredibly durable product for a great value. Designed from the ground up with a mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Again, head on over to www.stealthoutdoors.com to place an order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, well, today I'm joined by Adam Miller from the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Adam, how are you doing today? Wait a minute, I thought that... This was the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast, and I was joined today by Jeremy Gillespie from Going for Broke Podcasts. I mean, what? It is a bit confusing. Uh, well, I mean, what? who set this up? What What are we doing here? <laughs> that That's a good question. I just had a calendar invite, so I thought I set it up, but maybe you set it up. Oh, my gosh. I t- you know, I said, you know, from the get-go, I've always been the world's worst bow hunter. However, um that may take a second fiddle to the word world's worst scheduler. I mean, I'm pretty good at podcasting. I'm great at talking, uh, scheduling all of the minutia terrible. So it's probably on me, Jeremy, because you're much more professional in our dealings than, than me. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, whoever set it up and however we got here, I'm glad to have you on today. And Adam, for people that aren't familiar with your podcast, which I imagine quite a few people that are listening to mine are also listening to yours, but give me a brief summary of your podcast, kind of how you got started and what your target audience is on that. Yeah, I think we're, we kind of have like uh, some sort of crossover, I'd imagine. So back in, I don't know, like you think back to the, like the boom of the hunting podcast, but like 2017, um, there was like, Joe Rogan and you know, he was having John Dudley and Cameron Haynes and he's, he's telling everybody that they need to uh, start a bow hunting podcast and you know, so start up, start uh, any podcast. Um, so we, my wife's family is like my, my father-in-law is like Grizzly Adams. He's like this <laughs> murderous, 
uh, deer slayer guy. Um, and he doesn't kill big bucks. He's not like a, you know, one of these uh, Dan Infault type guys. He's a, a straight up opportunist, um, shoots, shoots deer. And her cousins are the same way. And they're not that much older than me. So got to, you know, listening to these podcasts, blah, 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 started looking for hunting podcasts. And there wasn't anything like that represented like us, like, you know, public land, hunting from climbers, running all over. And um, so we're like, all right, we're going to start a podcast. Started like laying the foundation, getting everything going and said, all right, January, 2018, we're going to start. And we're going to come from a place of just having fun, just, um, you know, doing uh, everything um, our way, representing our style of hunting. And uh, lo and behold, uh, so did everybody else. <laughs> so like, <laughs> right at that time, I mean, you, you talk about um, the amount of guys that are out there that are, have hunting podcasts and that like now are just public land and, you know, the people that have come after us and everything. And, you know, working class bow hunter was around and they certainly kind of like represent the same demographic, but they don't hunt Michigan. Um, they're not really traveling out of state to find big bucks. They're running trail cameras, naming bucks, you know, hunting set stands. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just something that we couldn't relate to. And it was more, and I, I we've, we've talked with Kurt and, and, um, I don't feel like they are, you know, like the TV style hunters. Um, but I do feel like, you know, for the guys that only hunt public land or hunt, like, you know, the, combat style hunting in Michigan or Pennsylvania or, you know, th that sort of, you know, that's, that's kind of where people gravitate towards us. And then we come at it from like, like, you know, you heard in the intro or like our little thing in the beginning there, like, you know, I come at it from like the world's worst bow hunter. So I'm learning along with my listeners and I'm trying to you know, answer their questions. I, I, I take every podcast from the listener's perspective rather than, um, look at me, I have a podcast and look how great I am. Uh, so we're not pretending to be anything that we aren't other than maybe, um, we don't give ourselves enough credit, I would say. Yeah, sure. And I think that's the interesting perspective and that does benefit the listener is to come at it. And that's what I try to do too. And that was a big reason I got into podcasting because I listened to, uh, and not a wide range, but I'd listened to some here and there, and, and I'm not going to mention any by name, but I felt a lot of them were lacking like good quality follow-up questions because, and I'm sure you've experienced this as a host too. Sometimes a guy will give you an answer and, and he knows exactly what he's talking about, but he doesn't give the detail. And I wanted to be a host that's really sussing out the detail asking those follow-up questions that like get down to the minutia, like why did you do that or what did that tell you you know what i mean and i, I felt like that was lacking in some of the other podcasts and that was kind of the, the angle that i wanted to take as a host yeah for like i go into every podcast um i try to do as much research as i can and i have a fair idea of like how i want to talk about it but um in reality as we're there um I pretend like I know nothing of like what they're talking about. Like if you're going to talk to Dan Infault and you've never heard of Dan Infault, then he's going to talk about 
buck beds and leeward ridges and things like that. And, you know, if you're listening for the first time, you're going to be like, well, what the hell is that? Or, you know, sure. um, there, so to just to, to get that level of detail, I can totally, um, I can totally relate to that. Well, and that's kind of one of the next questions I was interested in talking to you about because you've been doing this for quite a bit longer than I have. I just started last year, late to the party as usual. Um, <laughs> but w- do you think being a host and talking to all these different hunters, how has that helped you grow as a hunter specifically? Well, I've, I mean, so 20, 2014, I think it was 2014, like I killed the biggest buck of my life. Um, no, maybe it was, maybe it was since then, somewhere in there, 2014, 2015. I don't know. Um, I killed a giant buck in Ohio and you know, giant is relative for everybody, but this buck is like, uh, we green scored him at one fifty and five eights. So that's, that's like, a giant to me. <laughs> so, um, you know, I haven't had him officially scored or anything like he's just really big. Um, and so I like, I didn't do that by like skill or anything. It was just kind of like luck. Um, and then like not really followed up on that. I think, um, the next couple of years were nothing. I think I was kind of getting, uh, better as a hunter as I entered like the 2017 season. And I had like tons of time off. And I think I, in seven days I missed like, like seven deer or something. Oh no. Uh, oh, no. I, I wounded to like, it was the worst season ever. And here I am thinking like, okay, I'm going to go into, uh, this podcast. I'm, I've got all this time off. I'm going to, you know, and I put myself in, I got all these opportunities and none of these were like good bucks or anything exciting. They were just deer, but, um, getting into this is just like, if you want to like dive down that, like deep dive, like rabbit hole. And, um, I've heard you talk about like, you know, your changes, like once you got onto like the hunting beast and everything like that, like before I started the podcast is when I found the hunting beast and I was like looking on there, but I didn't have the time or the patience or like the, um, I don't know what the word is. Like I, 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 did, I just didn't kind of have like the stick to or persistence, I guess, to like weed through all of those. Um, so in the podcast, like I just seek out everybody that I think can help me and I can ask those questions and ask them and then go back and listen to them. And then in doing the research on the, on the guests, you know, I'm learning all this stuff. And then once you hear it, at least for me, and then you can think back like, and I think that's why podcasts to me are like so valuable is because, um, it's more of a passive way of learning. So I can do it while I'm, uh, mowing the lawn or at the gym or, you know, driving to and from work, whatever. Um, I can listen to it. And then if you're actually listening and you think back to like these other hunts, like on the things that you did, like you encountered a deer or like whatever, and prior to speaking to any of these guys or, or talking, getting to ask the questions. And, and I think that's one of the things that's really um, helped me is being able to ask my own questions and put it from a listener perspective um, because it helps everybody, I feel like, but it is very self-serving. Um, it, you know, I, I've been able to 
think about those things that happened and then kind of put myself back in that situation and things have gone better. So since we started the podcast, which is like four years, I think I've killed either four or five bucks. Um, I've killed my two biggest bucks in Michigan. Um, I've tagged out for the first year ever in Michigan on bucks and you can kill two bucks in Michigan. So, um, it's just, it's been a great, uh, tool now, uh, without the podcast, would I have had the same success just as like a listener and not being on the active side of that? Um, I don't know, but, um, it's definitely changed the way that I approach hunting. And if for nothing else, um, not necessarily that I feel like any pressure to, I have to kill a buck of this size or that. Um, but it's, it's very much an accountability piece because I feel like if you're going to talk to, uh, Dan Eberhardt or, uh, or I'm sorry, Dan Infault, John Eberhardt, uh, Andy May, like these guys that like live and breathe, uh, deer hunting. And that's what I found is a lot of the guys, uh, that are successful, um, killers on big deer year in year out multiple states you know they're spending you know anywhere from 200 to 300 days a year in the field scouting and hunting and i've listened to a lot of podcasts where guys that don't have the passion for it are trying to ask questions to these guys that are you know 100% all in all the time and it's just not the same so, um, I think for me, it's just more of like an accountability piece to make the hunt and, and the conversation authentic, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can relate to a lot of what you said. I, I took some notes here and a few things specifically. So I think we have a lot of, a lot in common on the origin of the podcast. Like I said, there's a few things I wanted to do as far as asking follow-up questions, but I also joke around that I started a podcast just to have a reason to call all these great hunters and pick their brains. And and that's at least partially true. And it sounds like it is for you also. Well, you're on the wrong, you, uh, you dialed the wrong number, pal. Like, <laughs> this is not, uh, this is not, uh, you're, you are not in the presence of a great hunter or even a good <laughs> hunter. Um, I'm a, a mediocre hunter. <laughs> well, I'm also trying to learn to be a better podcast host. And I think you guys are doing a great job there. Mm-hmm. So I, I am dialing the right number to learn. Maybe, maybe it's not to kill a booner, but I'm still dialing the right number. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, so I, I guess I could flip that on you and say, you, you know, from, from your perspective where there is, um, all of these, you know, I think there's a lot of really good podcasts, but I do also think that there's a lot of, um, uh, fluff out there. You know, when I, uh, I've helped a lot of guys, um, set up podcasts and guys that have started. And, you know, I put myself out there to, to help as many people. Um, because, you know, if, as you get into this, if you haven't found out already, the, the networking is incredible. So the more conversations that you're in, the more people, um, that you talk to, the more people that you help, um, that's going to be reciprocated, right? Um, but there's so many people that get in it and say, well, how do you make money? And like, 
you know, I just want to get like a whole bunch of sponsors like these guys and this. And, you know, I probably wouldn't shoot bows from like this company or that company. I'm like, man, you are a hundred percent in this for the wrong reason. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah, so, exactly. It, so in that climate of, you know, all these kind of like fly by night podcasts, and I do feel like on some level there's a war of attrition. So I tell people like, if you just keep you know, consistent and make that commitment to your listener. Um, and, and you have like any inkling of good information and a little bit of personality, like people will relate to you and they'll come back, but you know, you can't, you can't do that in four episodes or three episodes or whatever. And, you know, as you're finding out, I'm sure it's a ton of work. So how did you decide to jump into this, um, you know, kind of in your words, uh, this late in the game, a few different reasons. And I'll be completely honest about those reasons. One is I genuinely enjoy helping other people. And I had a really good mentor. Um, it's actually my girlfriend's dad around the time I was getting into bow hunting and he's just, he, this guy taught hunter safety for like 25 years. He was into trad archery, you know, taught me about Fred bear just like the, the guy you dream about running into uh, at that early stage in your career, that's going to help you out and set you on the right track. And so I've, I've tried to carry that on, helping other people uh, learn what I've learned. And at this point, I've learned a lot more. Back then, I didn't know anything, um, <laughs> anything at all. I, I was the world's worst bow hunter. So we'll have to have, we'll have to arm wrestle or something over that and see who, re- who really was. But uh, And then the other thing, and this is this is the selfish reason. So I started a YouTube channel. And I was like, oh, I'm in Montana now. So I'm actually from Michigan originally. I lived most of my life there. I don't know if you knew that or not. but So yep. I'm from Mich- Michigan originally. And I'm like, oh, I'm in Montana. I'm doing this cool stuff now. I'm seeing all these animals. And part of the reason is I want to share that with friends and family back home. And I was like, you know, I understand the YouTube monetization and all that stuff. And I thought, naively at the time, I thought, oh, it'll be easy to get subscribers and it'll be hard to get watch hours. So I was like, I should do a couple podcast episodes because if I do an hour, two hour podcast, you know, and I can get a couple hundred people to watch it, that'll chew up all these watch hours. Well, little did I know I, I got a bazillion watch hours now and I still got like 400 subscribers or something. But I've uh, I have really enjoyed the process. Like you said, it's a lot of work. But talking to these guys that I've looked up to, like I've had John on Eberhart read all his books when I first got started. That's kind of what kicked me off on uh, getting out of the world's worst bow hunter mindset. And then 2013, I got on Dan Infault's The Hunting Beast Forum, which I'm sure everybody listening is familiar with. And that was really a game changer. Like John's book set a really good foundation for me, especially hunting in Michigan. But I feel like the in-depth concepts from The Hunting Beast took that to another level. And it also really got me motivated. I started really pound in the woods in the spring like i was already spring scouting from i was reading from john but i mean i just got obsessed i don't have kids and my job allows me a fair amount of free time and i just love the outdoors i always have so i just started pounding um so in summary the the two reasons i started were were one to share knowledge and to talk to these other guys and and two for selfish reasons to help out my youtube channel which that's been an abysmal failure but that's a whole another topic (laughs) well i mean both of the things are, you know, YouTube and, and podcasting, um, I think, again, is is a war of attrition. And it's kind of just how you go about it. But it ends up 
being like, what do you want to get out of it? Because I mean, if you follow along, like one of the guys I think that puts out some of the greatest, um, like DIY style, like films and, and whatever is, uh, Byron from the, the whitetail experience. And, uh, you'll see him and, and Parker McDonald does a great job too, uh, with the Southern ground podcast. Um, he, he just does incredible videography and, and editing and, you know, very cinematic type stuff. Um, but in some of these outdoor YouTube page groups and stuff like that is like, it's just a place where like angry people go to like shit on like your hard work. And <laughs> sure. So it's, it's not a nice place. It's not a good space to be. And, um, you know, for, for YouTube, if you wanted to do it as like a, um, as like a job or something like that to do it in your spare time is very difficult, but you, you have to also look at, and I'm sure that you have, and if you haven't come to this realization, like this will really hurt your feelings. Um, you know, anytime you're like trying to work on something on your car and you've got some guy with a shitty cell phone, like video, like he's holding it in his mouth and like whatever, but he shows you how to, you know, replace that coolant sensor or something. And you look, and that's got like 30,000 or 50,000 or 200,000 views. Um, because maybe it's the only video in that. And you're like, man, I'm putting out all this great information. And like, <laughs> I'm doing all this work. I'm doing all this editing. And I got like 13 views. And it's like, it's like you could, if, if YouTube was your thing and you just wanted to do that, you'd be so much better off to just do like fix it shit around your house or do like a vlog or like start a kid's channel and just make shit out of clay. Like <laughs> right. it's such, right. it's such a, a difficult, like, you know, you have to be in it like in this portion of it, uh, for like the right reasons, I think. <laughs> yeah. For, for passion and going back to what you're just saying, uh, the thing that always comes to mind and, and it's not because I'm a Cam Haynes fanboy, but I do like, is saying nobody cares work harder. And that's just what I keep telling myself for deer hunting and podcasting. Like nobody cares about you. Nobody cares what you're doing. That's fine. Keep doing it sooner or later. Somebody will take notice. Yeah. And I feel like from, from that perspective, like on the hunting thing, like for me, I, I feel, you know, I was, I was told once, um, that hunting is a jealous man's sport. And like, to me, I was like completely baffled by that because I love like the deer camp camp mentality. I love like being able to share it with somebody like the buck that I shot this year is like there for, uh, 2020 was like, uh, right. Just over just under hundred inch Michigan eight point. Um, you know, my father-in-law who I do a lot of hunting with and his hunting partner, we're going out of town. I was hunting by myself and, uh, you know, my pod co-host, John, my, uh, you know, my podcast co-host there. Um, I called him and he was able to come out and help me, but like I was hunting by myself after I shot it. I was like, awesome. What do I do now? Like there's, I couldn't share, you know, there was nothing to share it with, you know, nobody to share it with. Um, it just was like, it was like kind of like an empty feeling. I would have been way happier to be hunting with somebody as like a group and have them shoot a deer. Uh, but I think about like, you have to have like your own expectations because 
You know, there's always somebody with better property, with more time, with more money, with more access to bigger deer. Like you shoot like your deer of a lifetime. Like I said, my 150s, like I don't expect to shoot another deer bigger than that. And to me, that's a giant, but like there's guys that are like, yeah, I'm passing 150s because, you know, there's 200s out there. And it's like boats or cars or whatever. Like there's always going to be a bigger one. It doesn't matter like how, you know, whatever you, you think you have. So if you're concerned with anything other than the hunt and like the, like the feeling that you get from like being outdoors and like being, being successful on, you know, one of the most memorable deer I've ever killed. And I killed it in the time frame of this podcast is a little, I don't know, probably if I scored him, it would be like 45 inch six point or something. Um, but that deer means more or just as much as, you know, the two bigger deer that I've killed in Michigan, you know, just circumstances. But the same could be said with, with a podcast. It's like, you know, our podcast does well, but we don't do YouTube numbers and we're not meat eater or anything like that. So it's like, who am I really up against? Like, who's my competition? It's just, I just got to be better every episode, every day, every hunt, every sit, um, to meet the goals that I set for myself. And, you know, everybody else can piss off. Right. (laughs) Now that the, the end sentence there resonates with me a lot because that's exactly what I'm about. And in hunting specifically is I'm only in competition with myself. I started out again. Uh, you know, we can arm wrestle world's worst bow hunter. Didn't know anything, but man, I wanted to get a a big deer so bad. And that's kind of where I started like the whole journey from reading the books, getting on the forums. And now that I've got a few, it's like, I want to keep challenging myself. And however that happens, you know, I, I got real lucky just if it was Sunday, got an antelope on a spot and stock hunt with my bow. And that was like a huge bucket list item. And now I'm after an elk. I've been elk hunting three years and I came out one year as a non-resident. So four years and I've only been drawn back one time (laughs) on an elk. So it's been pretty frustrating, but I'm just committed to it because that's what I want to do, right? That's my goal. I'm not doing it to impress anybody. I just want to do it because it's a challenge. But so like on that, like, like for me, like right now with like this podcast journey and I know like my limitations as a hunter. Um, so like if I want to kill bigger deer, I have to find bigger deer or get in a spot where there's, there are big deer. And like right now that isn't like my goal. My goal is to go out and kind of like maintain like what I've been doing and become more consistent at the level that I am. Like, I don't, I guess I just don't feel like confident enough that I'm ready to like, uh, take the jump or make the commitment as far as like chasing that next class of deer, like here in Michigan, out of state is a completely different story. Um, but I guess I really like am happy to help people and see other people, uh, succeed you know, in, in like, I don't want to say like, you know, I need like the pass on the back or like the gratification, like, like, yeah, I helped them do that. Um, but I do like to see people like that moment in their mind, like when it starts to click, 
You know what I mean? Like, so you talk about all this stuff on the podcast, you try to explain stuff to people. Um, you kind of tell them what you're thinking or like whatever. And then that moment where they're like, I went and I did this because I listened to this or, or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was able to harvest my first deer or I was able to kill my first buck or, you know, I was able to find my first buck bed and it was right where, you know, it was supposed to be. And that was because of like, because of that. And I, I get more fulfillment out of that than like, because if every hunt I went out and that's what I find interesting too, about like these guys that are like incredibly successful is they like have put in all the work to and Jake Bush is a good example. I talked to him on Tuesday um, on a webinar and he's put in so much time and so much work that he knows like where every one of these bucks bed on every wind. And so every time he walks into the woods, he fully expects to kill them immediately. Um, where I'm just not at that level yet. So I can't like, I would, uh, there would be a lot of like incredible, incredibly like, uh, anticlimactic and like let down hunts, if that makes sense. So to find something else to say, like, this is what I, ra- th- th- these are what my goals are. Like I have realistic goals and I'm a terrible, like early season, like get on deer type hunter just because of like, it's a time in the woods thing. Um, I don't commit that much time to, I, I mean, I do scouting, but I'm not scouting you know, this year up to this point, I've probably scouted the entire year since January, maybe, maybe 30 or 40 days. Um, so, I mean, I'm, it's not that I'm not out there and looking and scouting and doing my stuff, but I'm not at that level. So when it comes to the rut, I'm a much better rut hunter because it's like, I can find, I have no problem finding deer and then just what I would call getting lucky on like where bucks are going to be, you know? Yeah. I want to, I want to touch on quite a few things that you said there. Mm-hmm. And the first I tend thing to be is long winded. No, no problem. No problem. And I don't like <laughs> to interrupt people. The, uh, the, the first thing that I want to bring up and this is especially true because I think we're both have, uh, audiences with a lot of newer hunters is, you talked about people learning from the podcast and then getting out there and doing it. And I'm sure you'll relate anybody I know that's deer hunted for any amount of time or relate. There's no replacement for experience, right? You can read the books, you can watch the videos, you can listen to the podcast, but you got to get out there and get your hands dirty. And one of the mistakes that I see people making um, commonly early on, especially when they learn about map reading is Oh, I cyber scouted this area or e scouted this area, and that that's a good area, so that's where I'm going to hunt. And they don't do any boots on the ground. Like that just gets you near the ballpark. You still got to get in the ballpark, and then you got to get to the plate. So don't give up there. So that was one of the things that I wanted to mention. And then you talked about you know your your level as a deer hunter, and again targeting towards newer people. I think that's super important. That the first thing you need to do is just kill some deer. Don't worry about shooting a booner or a Pope young or whatever. Shoot some deer because I tell people this all the time. The time to learn when to draw on a deer is not when the deer of a lifetime is coming in, right? You want to have that experience already. So that's like when I think about deer hunting, that's stage one. Just get your hands dirty. Get in there and shoot the first doe you see or the spike or whatever. 
don't worry about what anybody's going to say. You need to build that foundation. And then uh, tier two, the way I think about deer hunting is kill deer consistently. Okay, so maybe you got one spike or a doe, and then you didn't get a deer next year. Well, maybe years two, three, and four, you kill some of those deer every year. And then, and this is personal, of course, if you want to, tier three, you try to kill bigger deer. And maybe you don't kill those consistently at first, but you kill uh, your first two-year-old eight-point or a three-year-old, and then maybe you don't for a year or two, and you go back to shooting the spike or the six-point, whatever. And But you, you've killed a bigger one or two. And then tier four is like kill bigger deer consistently. And I think it's important to have your mindset and your tactics like calibrated and be honest with yourself too about where you're at because nobody goes to killing big deer consistently right off the bat. Not Dan and fall, not Andy may nobody does that. So you got to crawl before you can walk and walk before you can run. And then the last thing I wanted to, to touch on, you talked about Jake Bush and going in and uh, you know, I've just learned about Jake Bush recently. So I, I don't know a ton about him, but I see his name popping up in social media all the time. So he must be doing good things. Um, but going out and knowing like exactly where the deer are. And I'd like to get your opinion on this too, because I'm actually going and this, again, this is personal preference, no judgment here. I'm going in the opposite direction. So when I lived in Michigan, I had, I at one point up to 15, like conventional trail cameras, never owned a, a cell cam. And I've been in Montana. This will be my third hunting season. And I haven't put batteries in a camera since I moved here. And this year, prior to the season, I went out glassing like once or twice because I don't know, for whatever reason now, and, and part of the reason, and this is being honest, there's there's a lot more quality animals in Montana and it's not as pressured. So you don't have to scout as hard. But I like the mystery of the hunt these days. Like, I don't want to know what's out there. I want to go and, and, uh, on the same topic last year, a friend and I, we went to Kansas and he's like, Oh, I'm going to probably bring one of my cell cams. I'm like, dude, don't do it. I'm like, you don't want to know what's out there. Cause you're going to get some monster on your cell cam and then you're going to get married to a spot and you're not going to shoot, uh, the, you know, a, a buck that maybe you would have shot otherwise, like a 120 or 130 comes by a deer that you'd normally be super happy with. If you've got some booner on your trail camera in Kansas, which, uh, which fun story, we actually did have one. Um, <laughs> And it's, I didn't want to know, right? I just, I wanted to be happy with whatever my goals were and not get tied up in something that I wasn't on that level yet. So that was just some interesting takeaways I had from, from your answer. I want to take a quick break from the conversation and get a word from one of today's sponsors. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com. Backwoods Mobile Gear produces an array of products to completely customize your mobile hunting setup. Backwoods Mobile Gear's product line includes climbing aiders like their multi-step aider and versa aider. Climb higher using the same amount of climbing sticks with climbing aiders at a fraction of the weight of an additional climbing stick. Backwoods Mobile Gear also offers a variety of Amsteel rope solutions from daisy chains for climbing sticks to Amsteel gear hangers. Replace those bulky straps and hunt-ruining metal cam buckles with buckleless and lightweight Amsteel products from Backwoods Mobile Gear. Check out Backwoods Mobile Gear at www.backwoodsmobilegear.com if you want your setup to be lighter, to take you higher, and to keep your gear tighter. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a couple things in there, like, even on what you said. So, and it, it kind of all all balls up into one. And it kind of, like, if you listen to 
um, the podcast that we did with Jake Bush at the end, you know, and he is, um, he's targeting, uh, the biggest deer, uh, possible. So he's got like a list of like top five deer that he wants to kill. And some of them are harder to kill. Some of them are, you know, what he would deem easy to kill with the information that he has, um, in his skill level. But like the deer he's targeting this year, he, he said was like, it said it was 170 last year. Um, and he found both of his sheds and he's alive and he's got them on camera. So, um, that's just like the level of deer that he's going after when you say that, you don't know, um, anything about him. Uh, when you're talking about like the boots on the ground and the e-scouting, like, and the cell cams and, and all of that. So, um, I had, I don't, I hadn't in the past run, uh, trail cameras or, uh, trail cameras very well. And, uh, again, being able to talk to all of these guys, you know, I, 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 place people in like two categories and one is someone who's actually using trail cameras for data. And the other people is where I was, where I was a trail camera enthusiast. Right. So I like to get <laughs> pictures of bucks. I had cameras out there and I was like, look at all these bucks that I have in the middle of the night <laughs> that are looking right. at my camera. Like, it's so <laughs> awesome. Like, check this out. I've got the greatest spot. And I wasn't doing anything with the information. I wasn't looking at the wind direction. I wasn't looking at the time. I wasn't looking at anything around there. I was putting like zero correlation into days of the year when these deer just uh, happened to be in these spots. Um, I was just like pumped that I was like, I'm on bucks, man. And, right. <laughs> right. you know, so, so, so that's something that people can like think about, like, what am I going to do with this information? But again, uh, I found the spot on the map, like diving in from like what you're talking about saying, okay, um, I'm going to try and learn a piece of property and test myself to see if I'm a good hunter or whatever. And so I just found like the biggest piece of property within X amount of miles of me. Um, and it, shit, it gets pounded. Um, you know, there's guys coming in from every direction, but I found, uh, and then I found a, a piece on there that looked terrible and it is um to access like it's far from everything and awful to get into and it looks like everything that you would want to see on a map um it looked like a big cattail swamp so i'm like oh this is gonna be so awesome it's in the middle of nowhere i get out there and it's this big ass grass field um <laughs> it, it, it but on the map you know it it, it lays out like exactly what uh, a cattail marsh would look like um sure right straight down to like if you switch over to like the the green like usgi map like it's low and shows the water you know so it looks mucky and it's totally not like maybe it was a long time ago um but anyways get out there and then okay it it's not what i thought um but there's a ton of um runways and I jumped a bunch of deer and found some buck beds and, you know, so it's super intriguing. So I dropped some cameras out there last year or a camera and the camera is so far out there and it's so hard to access. Um, it's not fun. There's nothing fun about it. I did not hunt that <laughs> spot one time last year. Only I walked in there, uh, one day thinking I was going to jump shoot something with a rifle 
only to check that camera or with a muzzleloader. This was like, you know, maybe like day after Christmas or, or something, um, only to check the camera to find out that it was just overrun from, you know, on the certain week of the year with bucks, you know, daylight pictures, like kind of like everything, like I've only ever hunted one time in the state of Michigan, um, maybe two after this past year, um, where I've seen like legit, uh, chasing and seeking behavior. Like, I mean, just like deer running wild. Um, and this camera kind of showed that was going on. So over after that, like I went back in there in January or something and threw up a couple of cell cameras, one on a buck bed and one on a community scrape. And I've just been kind of monitoring it. Um, but that's more for, because it's just a bitch to get in there. There's no, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn the piece of property using the cell camera versus trying to get, go in there week after week, day after day, you know, to try to figure it out. Actually, I think I'm going to go in there this weekend, um, switch out the batteries and kind of look for that. You know, you mentioned, you know, you, uh, read Johnny Eberhardt's books and the spring scouting and all that, but this would be like the speed tour prior to the Michigan season, um, to kind of see, you know, if there's any rubs or scrapes, like where I would expect them to be based on where I think the deer are bedding and, and whatever. Um, but now going from the trail cam enthusiast to using that information, like now I've got a week and probably like down to like three or four days where I know that I need to be, you know, around where that camera was. And, um, I want to go in there and check cause there's a ton of oak. So I want to see like, what's, what's dropping as far as that's, go- that's concerned. Um, but all of that to say, when I was having that conversation with Jake Bush, I was like, look, I was like, that's all great. Like the way that you hunt, but I don't have that amount of time. So what I'm doing is I'm using this, these cell cameras and these cameras to, um, get an idea of deer movement in there. And then I'm going to kill the first like buck, maybe the first doe, whatever that I get an opportunity to, because that to me is just like validation that I've kind of like figured out this spot. And then I want to do it, be able to do it again. And he's like, that isn't his hunting style, but he's like, I can totally respect like, cause he's like, I've never done that. He's like, I've never just gone in and just killed something in an area where I know that I can kill a deer. And, uh, I would say that that's more my style is like, and, and that's straight away from my father-in-law saying like, he'll walk in there. I mean, he is like the king of like, I, it's the king of killing four points or, you know, dinks or whatever, sure. but you give him any piece of ground, you know, in, in Michigan from October 20th to November 20th, you know, you give him any day he can get up a tree and see a buck. I mean, with, with anywhere, um, and has killed a lot of deer doing that. And so I think that that's maybe where I've taken my cues from, um, is just like, I see a piece of property. I, now I'm looking at it, the map I'm listening in my head to, okay, 
this is where John Eberhardt looks for. This is what Dan Infault looks for. This is what Litzinger looks for. This is what uh, Annie Mae looks for. And then you get in there on the ground and you say, okay, the, these are the spots. No, no, no. Okay, this one kind of melds everybody's uh, together. And I, I think that that's why I'm a much better rut hunter because it just, everything lines up. It's way easier. And I think also when you say like you go to Montana and you're not spending that much time, I mean, you, you guys are spending a lot of time shad hunting and, and out and about. Um, that's true. But uh, on the same token is like, I feel like, like I said, going out of state is a completely different animal because you add in a little bit less pressure with a little bit better genetics or little, little more age class. And I mean, so for me or my father-in-law to get on year and a half old deer or whatever, you know, now you're getting on two and three year old deer, you know, we're not killing six year old deer, but you know, and, and my co-host there, John, he's got buddies out in Montana and been out there and he's like, you know, there's, you know, the, the people out there hate whitetails for the, for the most part. And he's, his buddies, uh, outside of Bozeman, I don't know, 20, yep. 30 miles, something like that. And he's like, there's like one thirties, like around every corner, they're just in people's yards and they're in the way and they're like, kill them all. Um, yeah. So it's, so it's, it's a, the least favored big game out here for whatever reason. It's the bottom of the yeah. totem pole. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a different thing. And like, you know, you go to Ohio where you can go to Southern Ohio, you can go to, I mean, even, you know, Northern Ohio. And then if you head West towards Kentucky or, or wherever, um, you know, there's just, it just seems to be bigger deer. They've got one buck tag, um, there's a lot of land so you can kind of get away from people. You have, you know, different topography. So if you're willing to work to get away from people, um, it's just not that hard to get on deer, you know, Ohio, Kentucky, especially the the hills separate a lot of people that aren't willing to work that hard. And you only got to get over one or two big ridges and you lose most of the crowd. Yeah. And you talk about like, you know, wherever you're at as a hunter or like whatever, like the, in 2019, the buck that I killed was a weird ass, uh, four point or spike with brow tines, um, which was my first kill from a saddle and the first kill, um, on video. And the only reason I shot him was because I wanted to get a, I've been trying for like three years to kill something on camera. And I was like, well, this is, you know, my opportunity. And if I pass on this, you know, it's like, it's like one of those jinx things. Like I should have, I could have, would have, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I went to Missouri and passed on a, I don't know, 85, 100 inch, uh, eight point at 25 yards for 15 minutes, but I didn't have my camera set up and, uh, I just didn't shoot him cause I was waiting for something bigger and I ate that tag and you know hindsight is like I haven't killed enough deer around that range um to to be passing on them but at the same time it's like eh, I'm okay it was it wasn't a bad pass you know yeah I had the opposite experience early season this year so I've been really trying to start self-filming and last year 
I was on a really big mule deer early season. And the first night I saw it, I was on public land. This guy came in uh, kind of at prime time in the evening and walked on, on a hillside and was silhouetted. And this buck saw him. I was like 80 yards from him, not quite in range, but we're real close. And this guy spooked the deer off. So that's kind of a bummer. Well, the next morning I went in and I had my GoPro on my bow, which isn't the ideal self-filming, but I hunt from the ground a lot. So it's easier than a camera arm or a tripod. So I go into the same area and this deer, I spot it like, I don't know, hour after daylight, it's walking right towards me. And this is a legitimate, probably 160, 170 mule deer. I mean, really big one, probably the, the third or fourth biggest mule deer I've seen out here. And it beds down 75 yards away from me. So I go to turn my GoPro on and crawl in close to it and <laughs> going along with the self, the, the travails and trials and tribulations of self-filming. Somehow I had switched it to photo mode. So I took a photo and then proceeded to sneak in on this deer and get a shot an hour later, which I ended up missing. That's a, that's another sad story. But uh, <laughs> so I missed this deer. And then this year I get on uh, a good whitetail. And on the way out from my truck, I know I'd put a brand new battery in the GoPro and I use their app. It's called Quick. That's how you turn your GoPro on and off from your phone because I like to turn the camera on and then so I don't have to reach up to my head because I've got it head mounted this year. I'm going to mm -hmm. turn it on. I'm going to turn it on and off via my phone app. So if I'm getting close to a deer, I can just slide it on my pocket, hit the button. I don't got to move my arms all over. So this year I walk halfway out to my spot, which is like two, two and a half miles. And I go to test the camera and when I turn it on manually, so I turn the camera on manually on the camera and then I check the app, it says the battery's dead. And I'm like, oh man, I must've put a dead battery, but I, like I swore I charged them all. So long story short that evening, and this was September 5th, so like two weeks ago, I proceeded to shoot my number two whitetail buck from the ground at seven yards while wearing the GoPro and after I get the deer taken care of, corded up, I'm like, man, I'm so mad. I can't believe the battery was dead. So I check it again. It just didn't turn on the first time. I had 90% battery. So <laughs> just what an abysmal failure. And then I had a similar experience last week. I ended up shooting my first antelope last week. And um, antelope, have you ever hunt, hunted antelope at all? I've not, no. Okay, so they, they blow like a deer or snort, but it's 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 a different sound, but it's the same thing pretty much, you know, they're blowing out their nostrils and, and to make this a long story short, I spotted an antelope buck and a couple does downhill from me. I was actually going on an elk hunt and this is where like a big rolling sage flat meets some timber. And I was heading out to the timber to, to look for elk in the evening, but I have a antelope bow tag too. So I see these antelope and they're running uphill towards me and I get on Onyx real quick and they're probably 250, 300 yards away. And this draw that they disappear into goes uphill and kind of flattens out or heads out about, I don't know, 80, 100 yards from where I'm at. So I think, oh, I can run over there and, and blow this antelope stock because I've blown 25 or 30 of them this, this fall already. So what's one more? And it'll only take a few minutes. So I go to cut them off, and as I'm getting over there, there's an antelope buck on the hill, and I'm I'm quite sure it's not the same one. Well, he starts blowing. You know, I think he's seen me, and he's alarmed. So I get frustrated. I turn my camera off, and then I see these other ones come from uphill, and they run up to where this one's blowing. And I start walking back to the timbered elk hunt, and it's like 300 yards away. Well, I only make it about 50, maybe 75 yards, and then I hear one blow, and it's super close to me. And then I see them, they're running because when antelope bucks rut and they're running right now, like September's the antelope rut. 
they chase each other off like super fast and they run each other around like trying to run the rival bucks off anyways uh this one buck ran another buck basically right to me and i end up shooting it at 30 yards but because i was so frustrated that i was already busted i had turned the camera off again so i have like two of the coolest hunts i've ever had in my whole life while wearing a gopro and i don't have any footage of either one it's pretty sad Okay, guys, last break in the podcast, and it starts with a question. What do you get when you combine a prototype machinist who also happens to be a big buck serial killer named Dan Infault with state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet? You get HuntingBeastGear.com. www.HuntingBeastGear.com delivers cutting-edge products including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps all in a 2.2-pound package including the fastening strap. And new for the 2021 season, HuntingBeastGear.com has released the game-changing Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand. Designed from the ground up to be the ultimate hang-on solution, with four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear Stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform and comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear Stand is finished with a durable anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details or to place an order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Well, I mean... That is, I would say, not atypical for, you know, trying to sell film and, you know, you think, you know, oh, I'll do all this stuff, we'll put it on YouTube, all these things, and just like podcasts or whatever, um, you know, the whole thing is like saturated and so you don't get the traction that you want. So you're like, I'm not getting paid for this. It doesn't matter. It's a lot of work. Like I'm carrying extra shit. Like there's more. And that's why people abandon it or you don't do all the other stuff. So, I mean, I imagine that you do, but like, let's say that you did uh, get that stock and shot and all of that stuff. You know, there's so many people that do that and then that's all they have. So they have a GoPro shot for like the event, but they have no lead up. They have no B roll. They have no, you know, um, ending. Um, and you know, all this stuff is, it seems like it's so, so easy and we're just going to do this or whatever, but man, the amount of commitment and the amount of like letdown. And then, I mean, I got to commend you like so much for, um, you know, just saying like, well, the hunt comes first. I don't care that I don't have a, a, a camera. Cause if I would have done that, you know, I would have, I'm pretty sure I would have shot that, uh, that deer in Missouri. I would have said, okay, well, I'll, I should have had the mindset of I'll shoot him. If I would shoot him on camera, I might as well just shoot him. Um, but you know, again, hindsight being 2020. Um, but I wanted to, that is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because you know, everybody wants to go, um, you know, with, uh, mobile hunting and, um, being more mobile and, um, you know, the very, uh, charismatic Zach from the hunting public, 
you know, he's killing all of these deer from the ground. Um, and I mean, we're talking a lot of deer per year for the average guy. Um, so it makes like ground hunting and like stalking and all that. So intriguing. Um, so how did you get into that or adopt that? Or one of the questions, and I guess to go back behind, like we can lead into that with this. Normally I would ask like, what is your hunting background? And like, what's your normal style of hunting? Like when you were in Michigan, then I guess I would say like, as you transition to hunting in, in Montana, um, is it tree stand saddle? Has it always been spot and stock ground? Are you afraid of heights? You know, all of those things. Sure. No, my style has evolved uh, considerably as I've gotten more and more influences. So I'll try to keep this brief, but going back to the world's worst bow hunter. So when I first started bow hunting, I didn't have a lot of like uh, outside influencers or mentors until I was maybe 20, 21 when I met my, my girlfriend's dad, who was a guy I mentioned that's into trad archery and stuff. So the first couple of years, I didn't get hunter safety till I was 14. So I was a little late to the party there. And, uh, I got like a hand-me-down bow at 15. It was a bear whitetail two, and I was probably, this is probably 1998. So I got a bear whitetail two. The draw length was too long, and like I was 15. I think it was 70 pounds. I didn't even know how to adjust it. You know, just like real scab together setup. And uh, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, so that's part of the deal there. But my grandma had 15 acres, and a friend and myself built this like giant monstrosity of a, a tree fort slash blind and looking back to know what I know now, it's just absolutely hilarious because we built this blind and then I proceeded to put my bait pile on the, on the east side, you know, and Michigan's got predominantly west wind. So you can imagine how well that worked out, <laughs> um, you know, so I didn't know anything about playing the wind or scent control or anything. So from 15 to 19, I would say I was a very casual deer hunter, but I, I did enjoy it. I went out fairly often in the fall and I, I always gravitated towards bow hunting earlier. I've actually never even shot a whitetail uh, buck with my gun. I've shot one whitetail doe, uh, one mule deer with a gun and one antelope. And that's it. Everything else I've got spent with a bow. But so that was the early years. And then I would say 1920 when I met my girlfriend's dad, he introduced me to like playing the wind. And again, he was into Fred bear and archery. He had, uh, they have 120 acres. He planted some clover food plots, you know? So this was like eye opening stuff for me at the time. And that year, maybe the following year, I shot my first doe with a bow out of one of his ladder stands on a clover plot at like 10 yards. And this is a, a funny story too, because at the time, again, didn't have a lot of money. I didn't even have hunting boots. I wore my tennis shoes out to the stand and I shoot this deer. Well, before it comes in, there's this lead doe and like six other does. And they obviously winded me. They're blowing for like five minutes, but I just held still. And, and I think finally they just gave up, even though I know they could smell me. And the lead doe comes by at 10 yards. And again, I don't have a peep sight. I don't have a kisser button. I don't have a release. I got a single pin on my bow. And you know, this is, this is probably 2002, 2003. And I shoot this deer and it like kind of flinches and I, I think I miss it, but it's 10 yards and I can't believe how I missed, but I blacked out, you know, I was so excited to finally, to finally get drawn back on a deer, even though it was a doe, I couldn't believe it was happening. And 30 or 40 seconds later, all the other deer run off and this one's just standing there feeding. And then another 20 seconds it tipped over. So I'd hit it like the back of the lungs and the liver 
and it just died right there and I couldn't believe it. So that was my, my first kill and probably that's kind of how my deer hunting went for the next four or five years. I learned a lot for a lot more from, from a mentor there, a Boyd is his name. And then I was probably, this was 2009. So I remember it must've been 2008 at the local archery shop. I picked up a John Eberhardt book and this was around the time I was like getting more into the internet and trying to learn more about deer hunting. And I read the John Eberhardt books and that kind of blew my hair back too. I was like, Oh man, I got to go out in the spring. You know, I got to wear a scent lock. I got to climb 30 foot in a tree. I got to do all this stuff. So I really got after it probably starting in 2009. And that was the first year that I, I bought multiple tree stands. Um, I didn't have a saddle, but I, I bought four five, six tree stands and was doing no bait was starting to hunt like funnels and trying to get off the field edges, you know, starting to do more deer hunting stuff that works as far as I know now. And that year I shot, uh, on Halloween, because it was 2009, I'll never forget this. I shot my first pretty nice buck. Unfortunately, I hit it high in the shoulder. This was like a hundred inch eight point, which to me in Michigan at the time, like that's a giant, right? This is a big deal for me. So we tracked that deer, never found it. And then a week later, out of the same stand in the same spot, I shot that deer again and I hit it high again. So that was incredibly frustrating. I lost it twice. Long story short, on that deer, I ended up finding it dead in the winter, like January or February of that year. So that was kind of sad. That was my like first introduction. I'd never lost a deer prior to that, but I'd only shot does. And then the next few years were kind of rough. Like going back to my description, I, I would decided to be a tier one hunter. My mentor there, Boyd, he's like, you just need to shoot some deer. Just shoot deer. Don't worry about shooting because I was like, oh, I want to shoot an eight point or a ten point. He's like, just shoot some deer. So I took his advice and then 2011, 12 and 13, I shot, um, one or two bucks every year with my bow in Michigan, but these are like year old three point. I shot a six point, uh, a small eight point. And then 2014 was kind of like what I would consider the turning point for me because in 2013, I joined the hunting beast, started reading like nonstop, like got obsessed with that forum, reading everything I could. Cause I'm seeing all these guys with all these giant bucks and the tactics made a lot of sense to me, like real world stuff, right? Kind of like John Eberhardt. It wasn't magazine stuff. It was real world stuff. And I'm like, Oh, this is what I've been missing. I've been miss- missing all this stuff. So 2014, I shot my first hundred inch deer out of a lone wolf on the edge of a cattail swamp. And then I was like way overconfident, right? I'm like, Oh, I got this figured out. I know it all now. <laughs> and <laughs> I got, I got lazy and I didn't shoot another deer. Cause again, going back to what you said about Michigan, two buck tags. So I got lazy, didn't shoot another deer. And my friend, Joel, he'll probably listen to this. Joel called me out and he said, dude, you're like resting on your laurels. Like you haven't even started and you think you got it figured out. I'm like, you know what? You're right. You're, you're right. I'm being an idiot. So 2015, uh, I shot two, two year old bucks in Michigan with my bow by Halloween. And again, I was like, all right, I got it figured out now, but I'm not going to get lazy. So I had a friend, um, I was going to go to Ohio and this would have been the second time I went in 2014 with Joel. We didn't know what we were doing. We got absolutely destroyed. We saw like two deer the whole time in Southern Ohio. (laughs) Um, so that was my introduction to out of state hunting and I've evolved a lot since then, but that real green. And then, uh, 2015 went to Ohio with another friend who had permission from a farmer. So this guy owns, my friend owns uh, like a feed store, grain store. 
and he had a farmer that they had sold stuff to gates or something like cattle gates in Ohio. Long story short, we got permission there. And my friend had been going down there for like seven years and a great guy, but he's a, a Michigan hunter through, through the, through and through like sits corn pile. And you know, that's what you got to do. You got to feed the deer and this is hill country, Southern Ohio. So I had been reading the the hunting beast and I'm like, I know what I'm going to do. So this is literally how the story goes. We get down there. I've never been on the property. This is the first year I had Onyx and we go in on his ATV in the dark and he goes, I'm going this way. And he points to his left and he goes, this guy owns 400 acres. He goes, you can go probably a half mile to the right, any direction and just do whatever you want. I'm like, okay. So I had Onyx and I knew where the boundary was. So I walk out in the dark and I stop at the first rub I find and I, it proceeds to rain. I get soaked later in the morning. I walk up the hill because I'm, I'm looking for that upper one third from what I learned from Dan. And I'm looking for like the tops of draws where, where the deer movement's going to pinch down. And I find one and I set up right over it and there's like a fresh rub. And at noon, I see my first Pope and young deer I've ever seen. And it's like 10 yards behind me, but it ends up winding me and taking off. I'm like, Oh man, you know, I was so disappointed. So the following morning I told my buddy, I'm like, Hey, I saw a pretty good one. I'm going to move a little bit in the morning. And we got out a little bit late and I was doing all hanging hunts at this point. So I climb up this hill with my lone wolf and I hang it right at gray light. Like I'm getting in the stand right as it's getting legal light. I don't even have my jacket on yet. My bow is still on the ground with the bow rope tied. And I look up and here comes a really nice deer. I'm like, holy crap. So I, I haul this bow up on my rope. Like I'm like, I'm a starving man reeling up his first fish <laughs> in a month, you know, like this, get this thing up the tree. I get an arrow on. I don't even have time to take the bow rope off the limb of my bow. And I shoot this deer and it turns out to be my first Pope and young buck. So that was, um, the time that I really realized the, the tactics from the hunting beast and all the things that I read were like definitely working. I got into an area I'd never been on, read some sign, uh, read the topography on, on Onyx maps, got into a good area and, and made it happen. And that was just like, wow um so that that was like where i really started to feel like okay i can do this you know i can shoot big bucks i can go out of state uh i still was pretty green so this is six years ago now but to get into the ground hunting right around that time too maybe 2016 i watched my first whitetail adrenaline video i'm sure you're familiar (laughs) with with those yep yep and i was like oh that looks insanely fun and that fall I had another group of friends that had permission on a, uh, a, a farmer that had six different pieces in Kansas and they were all together, like 2,500 acres. He's like, Hey, you want to go to Kansas? I'm like, sure. I don't know anything about Kansas. Never been there. Never hunted an open country terrain like that. So we go there and, uh, that year I saw a legitimate, I think Boone and Crockett, maybe a 160, but I'd, I'd say it was a 170 and saw it two days in a row never did get a shot at it and and then from watching those white tail adrenaline videos i was like okay i'm gonna start hunting on the ground a lot more and 2019 was the first year that was my first year out west so i shot a mule deer off the ground spot and stock um in october and it was a smaller one two-year-old i'd never shot a mule deer though but basically what it what it came down to is I started really paying attention to the wind and I started using binoculars a ton, which, I mean, this sounds like simplistic 
but I think when you get down to what bow hunting really is, it is kind of simple in some ways. And I just started glassing a ton all the time. And I can't overstate the importance of binoculars out West. And basically what I do now, whenever I ground hunt is I always move into the wind. I always move cover piece to cover piece. And I, I always try to stay in the shadows and I'm going to, when I'm on a new piece, especially I'm going to look at onyx and I'm going to guess where deer are bedded, you know, in your traditional bedding areas, your thick areas, your oxbows, your juniper thickets, whatever it is out here. And between those empty areas, I'm going to move pretty quick, like a normal or even brisk walking pace. But when I get 300 yards from where I think a deer might be bedded, I glass for 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And only when I'm real confident that that area is clear, I'll move up to the next piece of cover. And then I'll repeat that process. And that's worked out really well for me because by using the glass so much from distance, almost always you can spot the deer before they spot you. And then you've got the wind advantage, obviously. And then it's a matter of, of getting into position. And I've learned out here to be extremely patient. And I can't overstate that too. I think Dan Infault talks about it a lot. Like you... The, the modern world is in such a rush when you get out there to hunt, like you carry over a lot of that energy. So I really try to slow down and, you know, move through these areas. Like, like I'm hunting, like my life depended on it. And that makes a huge difference for me. Like if, if I didn't have to go home and eat a pizza out of the freezer, right. If I didn't know that was there, I'd hunt a lot different. And I think most people would. So I've tried to adopt that mindset and, th- and that's paid off as well. Um, but going back to hunting on the ground that fall 2019, so I shot the mule deer. Then I went to South Dakota with my buddy Joel and we got on, uh, I, I should say I got on the first day there. I was driving around and, and part of the thing that I do when I go to out of state, I, I'll always spend up to 25% of the trip now scouting. And that might sound crazy, but if I've got a four day trip, I'm willing to sacrifice an entire day just scouting. If I got a 10 day trip, I'll sacrifice two, two and a half days, especially in a new area. Cause you got to find the deer first. That's super important. I think people, if they're listening to this and you go on an out of state hunt, if, if you don't know where the deer are and you're just going out and hunting, you're wasting your time and your success is going to be way lower. Spend the time. Uh, even if it means you're sacrificing a bunch of your hunt. And so 2018, I'm going to jump back here a little bit. 2018, uh, Joel and I went to Kansas for the first time and I didn't have permission on the the same place I did in 2016. We were all in public and I never stopped scouting. We were there for like six or seven days. I hunted like twice, but I found a ton of good areas. And then we went back last year in 2020 and I killed a deer on the second morning. Um, but, but that was from a tree stand going back to the ground, 2019 South Dakota. We, we get into, or I get into South Dakota, I'm driving around, checking parking, checking ag fields, and I see two nice mule deer, and the archery tag there is good for either or. So when uh, when I get there, I see two really nice mule deer, like 140 class, which is, you know, pretty solid, respectable mule deer, and they were right across from public. So I get out of my truck, go up the fence line, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to try to put a stock in these things. And on the way, I jumped a really nice whitetail bucks i was like well busted that never saw the mule deer so i called joel that night and i said hey i saw two shooter muleys and a shooter whitetail on this piece and he was driving from michigan the next day so i'm like i'm gonna go in there in the morning and this was 
one of the eye-opening ground hunting experiences for me and this is kind of going back to, to glassing and stuff what i adopted this was november 7th 2019 it was super cold it was like literally two degrees out in the morning and i knew that i wasn't going to be able to sit long in a tree stand so i'm like oh i'm gonna ground hunt because one find the deer right i'd kind of already found the deer because i saw three shooters but i wanted to scout the area out more so i took my bow and i decided i was going to still hunt through this area and there was no wind that morning and it was so calm and it was so frosty that the grass like it was crp it was real loud so i kind of improvised a tactic i'm like i'm gonna go to where i saw this deer i'm gonna stop 100 yards short i'm gonna glass i'm gonna glass for 10 15 20 minutes if i don't see it i'm gonna use my grunt call because it's like peak of the rut kind of so i did that grunted didn't see anything went to the next draw which was like 600 yards away grunted didn't see anything went to the next draw after that again glass and grunted and then i heard a buck grunt back and i was like i can't believe that happened it was like 60 yards away and he proceeded to, to walk up the hill right to me and i shot him off the ground at 18 yards so probably not a very traditional ground hunt but I think uh, improvising the tactics for that day really paid off. And then I've just continued to do that type of approach since. And I don't really hunt out of a tree stand hardly at all anymore. In the West, uh, I will say this, people are listening in the Midwest or Michigan, especially Pennsylvania. The West is a lot more conducive to ground hunting. So that's part of the reason I've had success. But everything I've shot almost since, with the exception of the one Kansas buck, has been off the ground. So that was a very long-winded answer. But that that's how my uh evolution went from you know tree fort to ground hunting and everything in between <laughs> so uh when you talk about the importance of glass and my brother uh, he's hunted south dakota i think for like the last five or six years um what are you using for binoculars like what do you recommend if you're going to be Western focus specifically, so that's a question I get from a lot of my friends that want to come out and hunt. Do I need a spotting scope? And my answer is almost always no. I would rather for weight savings, especially too, because I, I do a ton of, I cover a ton of ground, like on a typical hunt where I don't get a deer, I might walk eight, 10, 12 miles in a day. Um, and so a spotting scope gets heavy. I would rather have a quality 12 power binocular and a tripod because you can get almost as good a results out of a tripod mounted binocular, you know, not handheld. So you're not shaking that you can get out of a spotting scope. The one exception I would say where I would want a spotting scope is if you've already got a few, let's say mule deer or antelope and you're looking for a trophy one, you know, or older age class one, I want the spotting scope then to differentiate a deer a mile away from you know, a good deer from a great deer. And, and last year I had some friends come out and we used a spotting scope a lot because they came out the year before and shot a uh, solid deer, but like kind of average mule deer. And they, they both wanted to shoot bigger ones. So we brought the spotting scope and looked over a lot of deer and it just saves you a ton of, a ton of walking. So going back to what would I recommend 12 power binocular and, and a tripod, and you don't need anything elaborate on the tripod, just something to hold your, your binos still. So, in that instance, so A, what binoculars are you using? And then B, are you using a tripod in the instance that you're you're talking about where you're setting up for, you know, 
10 to 30 minutes, like in between, like, I guess, as you're still hunting, are you bringing in your tripod, setting it up, picking it up, stocking, setting it back up? Or, um, how are you doing that? Uh, that, that all depends on terrain. And so I'm almost always bringing the tripod and, and to answer the binocular question, I've, I use a vortex razor. So it's not the current generation. I bought them, I don't know, 2017, 2018. So it's like the generation before the current generation, but they're, it's a high quality binocular. You know, they weren't, they weren't free. Um, and so I'm, I'm using those. I'm always bringing the tripod, but to answer the question, am I always glassing off a tripod? No, that's terrain dependent. And again, a lot of times when I'm still hunting, I'm glassing anywhere from, you know, 50 to 300 yards ahead. And in that case, the, the shake, you know, from your, from handheld, isn't nearly as bad or I'll lean on a tree or a lot of, you see a lot of guys putting the binos on the top cam of your bow to stabilize them. And no, I'm, I don't, I don't feel it's necessary there where I want the tripod is for extended range glassing where I've got a good visual where I can see 500 yards plus and the tripod's going to help me tell the difference between is that a, you know, a three by three mule deer buck or four by four, or are the beams just kind of out there or are they all the way out to the end of his face, you know? So that detail at distance is really where you want the tripod. Okay. And so that's what you're talking about in terms of, uh, like terrain. So when you're looking over like real big, flat, open terrain would be more than, like going through a bottom or going from drainage to drainage type deal. Yeah, exactly. And I'd be much more inclined uh, with my style of hunting to use the tripod early on in the hunt, like day one, day two, day three, where I'm covering a bunch of ground again, trying to find the deer. And then once I've found them, um, not that I won't take the tripod with me, but once you're moving into the area and you think you're closing in where those deer might be, then I'm using the tripod a lot less than. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think I had another question in there. Um, but just based on like, uh, yeah, here we go. So for you as uh, a guy coming from Michigan, headed out West, uh, and you've moved out there, um, what do you wish you would have done differently while you were in Michigan? Or if you were to come back to Michigan, um, what would, how would you change your uh, tactics that you had used, uh, previously. Uh, I would have, I would have left Michigan earlier. <laughs> <laughs> no, on, on a serious note though, um, everybody that hunts in Michigan and I hunted there most of my life, everybody that has done it knows what a challenge it is to shoot a trophy animal. And, you know, uh, Dan and fault and those guys, when they did, the uh, the public land challenge and they came to Michigan, um, I was a little frustrated with Dan, to be honest. And I consider Dan a friend, you know, I've talked to him. I've been on the forum a long time, but he's like, I don't know what the problem is. There's lots of deer here. Yeah, there is lots of deer. There's not a lot of older age class deer, Michigan. When I explain it to other people, I say Michigan is a great state for opportunity. And what I mean by that is if you want to shoot your first deer or a buck, Michigan's a great place to do it. It's got a huge deer herd. There's lots of deer all over through the state. But if you want to shoot a trophy class animal, uh, you're way better off to go out of state. So what would I do differently? I would do a few things differently. Um, one of the 
biggest challenges and it's difficult to overcome in Michigan, I think is, is access. People are very, because there's so many hunters, it's very hard to get on private lands. And then as you know, the, the Southern lands, uh, public lands in Michigan, even the bigger ones get absolutely hammered. I've hunted most of them. So I understand that I would probably look more to the Northern lower where the pressure on the public lands is a little lower, even though the deer don't have as good a soil or, you know, genetics. So a four-year-old deer in, in the Northern lower isn't going to have the same rack as a four-year-old in the Southern lower. Right. I mean, that's been my experience. Would you agree? Yeah. The only thing I would counter that with, and, um, I'm not, I'm not by a hundred percent, not saying that you're wrong. Um, I'm just saying that I think like what they've done with the antler point restriction in like some of that Northern area has, actually shown a lot of benefit um you know so much to say that there's some surprisingly good deer being taken from like the northern area but yeah i mean apples to apples four-year-old versus four-year-old you're gonna have you know a stark contrast in in the deer sure sure so um, a, a lot of the tactics that I use now rely on bigger tracks of land, like being able to, to move around and to make moves on deer. So I would focus more on some of those bigger public land tracks in the Northern lower. And I would just understand that even if I got on older deer, they're not going to necessarily have, uh, you know, a real big trophy class rack, but you could probably get on some three and four year old deer up there because those areas do get a lot less pressure in my experience and they're a lot more vast. And that's one thing I've never been afraid to do. And it's benefited me a lot out here is, you know, walk grind. I'll walk two, three, four miles back to hunt. And that's easier to do when you ground hunt too, because you're not lugging a stand or, or whatever. So that would be one of the big things that I would change. And the other thing I would say in Montana, there's a lot of deer, but unlike Michigan, there's a lot of areas out here that are like completely void of deer just because there's not the habitat to support them or, you know, they'll be completely devoid of whitetails or very few mule deer. Um, so I would, I would spend a lot less time in unproductive areas in Michigan. And, you know, this is something Dan talks about on the forum too, like crossing out 95% of an area. When you find out an area is unproductive, get out of there and, and stick with those areas that are and i want to circle back to something that you said way earlier talking about the piece of public land where you're in the cell cam or or maybe it was a traditional cam last year and you know that one week time of the year is the hot ticket um log that stuff in michigan especially it's super important keep a log that spot a is red hot from you know whatever the date is november 1st to november 5th and almost always unless there's major changes to the landscape that area is going to be hot next year and it's harder to find spots that are hot in early october but right around the time that i was moving i had found a few and uh that were productive for like three years in a row every year early season so you better bet that's where you're going to find me october 1st on the opener was that spot and the first decent buck that i killed in michigan like the 100 inch deer that i killed um, that area was only good around Halloween. So seasonal timing, I think is one of those things when you're looking for consistency to go from shooting a good deer occasionally to shooting good deer regularly, 
that seasonal timing in those certain spots is is super critical and to keep a log or, or however you remember that make sure you know okay these are the spots i need to be on on these dates because it doesn't happen overnight but let's say you know this year you find one of those spots and next year you find another spot and the next year you find another spot well five years from now you've got five different spots that you know are very high odds and you rotate through those spots during that time of the season when they're hot and pretty soon you've got uh, a real good library built up and that you know opportunity is bound to to happen sooner or later then because then you're kind of sounds like what jake bush is doing right then you're getting into the areas that you know you got a real good chance of killing a deer yeah and i mean he's really big on like early season i would i would liken what you just said to like that's the way that I see uh, the way that Andy May hunts is he has like these little windows all the way across the season and, you know, to some degree, uh, the country as far as like, I know this spot, this day, you know, these cameras. And one of the consistencies with all the guys that I talk to that are like, you know, on that, what you would describe as tier four, like have notebooks and all the things, you know, maps, topo maps, like from way back in the day. I mean, in like, you you know, we've all seen the meme where the, the guy's got all the papers up on the wall and all the little red things connecting. Strings going. Is, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that is like legitimately how these, highest level deer hunters um think and work and you know they target these specific deer um and it's a hundred percent what you said is like is is logging those you know over five years you know that this piece is good on this time and this piece is good on that time and this piece is good on that time and uh you know i, I just feel like everybody wants that magic easy button and like you had said earlier, you know, there's no, um, you know, replacement for time in the woods. However, you know, your experience in Ohio showed you that, you know, tactics and, you know, taking, I think taking a step back and looking at like one of the things that I've learned, uh, from the podcast is like, sometimes, like I, I used to feel like I needed to be in the woods every time I got an opportunity. Um, and from even from your conversation here, you know, you're saying you'd rather sacrifice days, you know, time on stand to the scouting. And it's like, if you have time and it's not right, it's not right for the wind. You don't have something where you're like, this is where I need to be on this day instead of feeling like you need to be in the woods on stand, maybe for guys like myself or um, guys that are thinking about trying to do uh, some of that ground hunting or whatever, like that's where you leave your stand, you leave your sticks, you leave your saddle and you just kind of pick your way through the woods and you're trying to find that sign for what's going on right now um, rather than, just wasting a sit. And and that's one thing that I've learned. And again, like I have my own, like, I don't know, like mantras and things like that. I, the way of thinking and the way that I view, like 
hunting days or days in the woods. But I think the biggest thing that I've gained from the podcast is I've spent a lot more time on stand hoping that I see something. And I've spent a lot more time actually hunting and being putting myself in a good situation instead of just saying like, you know, I know deer cross over there, but my stand is here. The tree that I hunt is over here. So man, I hope they come by. It's like, no, like we need to move. I need to get over there. I need to, I need to, I need to shift. I need to adjust. I need to be flexible instead of being so rigid and just saying, I need to hunt every day that I can. Even if like, I'm certain that I'm not going to see anything. Um, but I think that that's one of the takeaways that I've had, you know, from this whole thing and in this conversation today, you know? Yeah. And I want to tell you a quick story to illustrate that point. I, I touched on briefly 2018, Joel and I went to Kansas and that was the first year we hunted exclusively public. And I basically drove around the entire trip and hardly hunted at all. One of the things that I did discover while driving around was two or three really promising areas. And the one area was uh, Dan Infault calls it dating the fat chick. So I drove past this farm and just past this farm, I'm talking a hundred yards, 150 yards. There was an area on three separate occasions during the six days we were there that I saw a shooter buck standing right off the road where it was going to cross the road right by this farm. And, and I'm talking 10 yards, right? Like right off the road. And when you look at it on the, and I don't want to give too much away about the spot, but when you give, cause it's public land, but when you look at it on the aerial, it's not necessarily obvious that it's a funnel, but when you see the deer and then you look at it on the aerial again you can like use your imagination and see how it's a funnel so when we went back uh this past year 2020 i told joel i'm like hey i'm gonna sit that dumb spot right so i parked my truck um by the farm just on the edge of the public i only walked the 100 150 yards to this area where i had seen these deer crossing and i set up my stand in the dark hang and hunt in the first morning, this is a hundred percent true story. So I get in the stand about six o'clock and I think legal shooting light was like six thirty-five, or maybe it was seven and seven thirty-five, because it might have been after the time change. Whatever it was, I was in stand, you know, thirty-five minutes before daylight. And I I range find it. I was thirteen yards off a county road. Uh, <laughs> so so I feel absolutely ridiculous, right? Like and as I'm setting up my stand, I climb in the lone wolf. And I'm there five minutes and I hear a snort wheeze like 200 yards away. And I've only heard a snort wheeze maybe four or five times out in the woods. But if you've ever heard one or anybody that's ever heard one, it's very distinct and you know it when you hear it. And so I'm like, oh, you know, that's obviously a good buck. Like two-year-olds aren't out here snort wheezing. And I was immediately, I got anxious. I'm like, oh, it's too early. I don't want that deer that close, right? They're probably going to come through this area. And then 30 seconds later, it snort wheezed again. I'm like, oh man, you know, so I'm like on the edge of my seat already. So I'm sitting there and now it's probably 625, 628 and I hear crunching leaves. And I like, I know it's one of these deer or probably this buck that I just heard. And these deer are working up. There's uh, an area next to the road that's kind of a draw and these deer are coming through the draw and they're like 25 yards away and I can barely make out the silhouettes. But I got a good wind and three of them walk by me. And then I hear another deer coming. 
and that one kind of cuts through the draw and it's coming right at my tree so i'm already standing up at this point and you know every second that passes it's getting closer to legal light and this deer adam walks right to my tree and i'm looking I'm, i wasn't up very high 15 feet or whatever and i look down when this deer is literally right in front of me three yards away and it lifts its head up and i can tell it's a giant buck and i'm like oh man and i know right about where he's at he's just starting to catch my scent so he takes a few hops off and and where i was at it was like leaf covered so the ground was brown but he got out into some like canary grass where it's yellow and then i can i can tell i'm like holy crap that's like a 150 you know this is like a legitimate buck and uh so the does that he was following one of them must have been in heat i think this was like november 12th november 13th and they're like looking back at him like what are you doing and he's looking at them like come on this way it's you know it's dangerous so this this buck just yeah. finally walk walks the opposite direction of the does and i'm like defeated you know i can't shoot yet because one i'm pretty sure it wasn't legal light and two even if i wanted to i don't think i could have saw my pins but just enough to like make out the silhouette of the deer well 10 minutes later now it's getting light i look over and this deer is making a huge circle around me to go catch back up with his does like 90 yards away and and then 10 minutes later i see him on the other side of the road and there's a two-year-old buck and they all start chasing they come running back by me at 40 yards and again this is like a, a 140 for sure probably 150 class buck and so the reason i'm telling this story is one don't be don't be scared to spend time scouting two if you see something that's happened in the past it's probably going to happen again in the future and three i sat at that spot the next day and i shot what the uh the guy that cape my deer told me it was a four or five year old six point and people are like a six point whatever but this deer's got six inch bases and it scored 115 as a six point <laughs> so oh, yeah so it's a really big weird ugly deer but um it's just a, a a good story to illustrate a lot of things like i said don't you know spend the time scouting because now i found a really good spot one of one of two or three that we found um and then if something seems dumb trust your eyeballs right i saw deer cross there three times two years before why wouldn't they do it again nothing changed and and they did you know i saw that morning that i shot that six point i saw four other bucks i think or maybe that was the fourth buck i shot um so they were going through there and it just it, you it would be the last place on earth looking at it from a map or driving by that you'd be like oh yeah that's the spot right there so i don't know think outside the box too <laughs> so um i i guess i always like i said i always view things from like the listener and um uh, you know a lot of our guys you know maybe have never killed a buck before uh maybe have never killed a deer with their bow um, and it's not, um, they're not your typical, you know, as you said, like tier two, tier three, tier four hunter, they're the, get, uh, the, the deer under your belt guys. And there's a lot of guys that are chasing that, that next level that have killed a lot of like easy bucks, um, or easy deer. And now they're chasing that their first eight point or their first hundred inch buck or their first Pope and young. Um, so I want to ask you in this frame is like, what, um, what are your goals for the season? And 
like for those guys that are trying to um, level up their uh, game, like what motivates you or what has helped you like along the way? Um, I feel like in a, in a healthy, like introspective type way versus like social media says everybody kills a 140. So that has to be the standard. If, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my goals and they've changed a bunch as my deer hunting's progressed. Right. So initially my goal was shoot a deer and then it was shoot a two-year-old eight point. And then it was tag two, two-year-old eight points with my bow in Michigan. And then it was shoot a Pope and young. And now it's my goal currently, uh, number one. And I think it's easy to lose sight of this. Number one for me, still to have fun. I hunt because it's fun for me and I love it. And I don't ever set a goal that's going to make it not fun for me. And I've been on quite a few out of state hunts now. I don't know, 10, 12, quite a few, hunted six, seven different states. Um, and I've hunted with a lot of different people. And it's interesting to see what people's personalities do when you're struggling, you know, and when I say when you're struggling as a group and some people, buckle down and grind harder and and some people fold, you know? So I don't understand the people that aren't having a good time, even when you're not seeing deer, because I just love, I love new experiences. I love to travel and I love to learn and figure things out. So I don't need to shoot a deer to have fun. And I also think that anytime you go out of state and especially for guys that are doing it for the first time, I, I mentioned it briefly earlier, 2014, my first trip to Ohio, I got destroyed. I literally, I saw one deer in like four days, just soul crushed, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing at all. Just failed. Um, out of state hunting. I always tell people it's a marathon, not a sprint. And if you're going to go somewhere, do your research first. And and some of the things I would recommend would be call the biologist. Cause you usually get pretty good information from a biologist. Uh, maybe spend the $35 to register for Pope and young because they've got a really good online database where you can search by County. So let's say you're thinking about going to a North Dakota or South Dakota, get on there. And again, a lot of people don't register the deer, so this isn't foolproof, but use the resources like that and find an area that's got some bucks of the caliber you want to target, whether that's a hundred inch deer or 200 inch deer, whatever. Do your research, and you mentioned it earlier, networking, um, and then f- figure out where you want to go first and make sure you're going to be in an area that's got what you want to deliver. But then commit to that area, I would say at a minimum, at a minimum for two years. You know, Do your cyber scouting, go there, plan on just learning the first year. If you see a deer or shoot a deer, absolutely awesome. But go back a second time because how I describe it to people is the second time, let's say you go on a, a six day hunt the first time. Well, when you go back, you're not starting at day one, you're starting at day seven, right? Go back to the same area, the same time of year. And you've got all those lessons and that foundation built up where when you go back, you're going to be that much farther ahead of the game. Um, so that's my advice on out of state hunting and going back to goals for me at this point, um, my goal is to shoot a deer that will be in my top three, and I, I kind of developed this rule for myself because it keeps it fun and it keeps it challenging. So, you know, when I had shot a hundred inch deer, uh, top three, that meant I could pretty much shoot anything. And I'm up to the point now where 
if I'm going to shoot another whitetail, it's got to be like a mid one thirties. Um, so that's still very doable, especially in Montana. I've got an Iowa tag this year, so I'm definitely hoping to get one there. Um, but I haven't set my goal at like 200, right? Because that's unattainable for me as a normal guy hunting public land. And to get back to your question about what should a guy do that is maybe looking for his first deer or looking to shoot, uh, a little bit better, you know, two, three-year-old deer consistently, I would say that the two best things you can do is, is study. And one of the things I, I feel like that doesn't get talked about enough is like deer biology. I'm kind of a nerd admittedly. And one of the things that's really helped me and and this isn't for everybody. So I'm not saying everybody go do this, but I actually read quite a few research papers. And if anybody wants to check out a great source for like research based deer stuff, Penn state university's got their deer blog, PSU deer blog. If you Google it, it'll pop up. And I actually had the guy that runs that Dwayne Diefenbach. He's the, the head researcher there had him on the podcast, a lot of great information and they're doing like GPS telemetry studies and you can find out, um, empirical, you know, real world data, what are deer doing? Not social media, not hearsay. Here's the facts, right? Here's a bunch of GPS deer collar studies over five years and a hundred deer. So study, learn the animal. And then the best thing you can do is besides study is spend time in the woods. Every time you get out there, you should be learning something. And a lot of times what you're learning, whether you realize it or not, is this area or this tactic doesn't work. And that's important to, you know, crossing stuff off that doesn't work. And then anytime something does work anytime, like even if you get a sighting, an opportunity, a shot, whatever, really think about what was going on there. Don't just be happy it happened. What was the wind? Where do you think that deer was bedded? What are the crops like that year? Like really think through it and analyze it. And then anything that you're fairly certain on, take note of that, write it down. Uh, however you, however you remember it. But one of the things that I do these days, everybody, not everybody, most people have onyx these days. And I see a lot of guys just marking waypoints. There's a note section on onyx and my notes are pretty extensive now. Like if I see a deer, I write, okay, I saw this caliber deer, you know, 120, 130, whatever it was, at this time of day on this type of wind and the crop was this and i think he was coming from this area i'm not just making a waypoint i'm i'm making a log so when i'm in that area again in the future especially on out-of-state hunt or if i'm traveling in state to hunt i can look at it and say okay here's where i saw deer before and, and it was under these conditions and it goes back to seasonal timing and being in the right area at the right time under the right conditions and that's where i think you really start to get consistent success on on whatever your goals are whether that's more deer or bigger deer or whatever it's it's putting in the time man i think that's some great advice because um you know a, a lot of that is you know maximizing your time that you're out there and like with the notes is incredible but like that deer blog um figuring out the animal and doing that side of research now may be somewhat time consuming, but you don't have to be in the woods to do it. So I would say that that's something that, that certainly doesn't get talked about um, that much. Now, I mean, this is your podcast, my podcast, all of that. I think I've, I've kind of answered 
got all the questions that I wanted to have answered other than I always ask, or we always ask like one of the staples on our show is like, what is your bow setup? What are you shooting bow arrows, uh, broadhead sight, all that stuff. Uh, sure. So I'm not a huge gear guy, but I do try to keep like my gear in good working order. And I probably upgrade my bow on average, like every seven years. So the last bow I bought was in 2018. Um, I finally got a real job about 2013 and, and was making a little bit of money. So I was excited to treat myself. So I bought a Hoyt uh, Carbon RX-1. That was one. That was the first new bow I'd ever bought. Everything else was either hand-me-down or used. So that was kind of a big deal for me. And uh, so I bought I bought that, and that was spendy, obviously. And I don't th- let me let me stop right there and say you don't need an expensive bow. I killed plenty of deer with, like I said, hand-me-downs or, or used bows that did just fine. So you do want a well-tuned bow. If you don't know how to tune your bow, go to an archery shop and, and have a pro staff guy help you because I think it is important that your bow's you know paper-tuned and it, it's shooting properly. So make sure if you're going to spend money on anything, save a little money, buy a used bow, spend the money at the archery shop to get your setup tuned. Um, going through the rest of the bow, I am a big advocate of a multi-pin fixed sight. And part of that is because I, I ground hunt more, especially now. And I don't want to be messing with a slider. Uh, I think it's it's not as bad if you're in a tree stand uh, or if you're only hunting 30 yards and under to have a single pin. But being out west, I really like a multi-fixed pin sight. So I run a spot hog. Um, boy, I don't even remember the name of it. I Maybe it's the Hoggett, I think is the name. Anyways, okay. it's a five it's a five pin sight and it's on a dovetail. And I like the dovetail for two reasons. One, if it's in my bow case, I can, you know, push the sight all the way tight to my riser. And the second reason I like the dovetail is because I like my um the spot hog's got like a green ring around the pin guard, and you can adjust the dovetail to um, so your pin guard fits perfectly inside your peep. So you get a good ring within a ring, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I like that. If I was going to buy a new site now, I would actually probably go with like a three pin fixed with a fourth pin slider. Um, so I do like that setup a lot where you'd have like a 20, 30, 40 fixed. You, you'd have your slider set to, let's say, 50, and then you could get range out to 65, 70, which... Um, in Michigan, probably don't need that, but out west, especially on antelope, like I missed two antelope this year. My first two shots on antelope were like 63 and 70 yards, right? And that's probably sounds crazy, but when you're spotting stock antelope, um, it's incredibly hard to get even that close. So that's something I would want out west. Um, I run a QAD rest. And one of the other things, and I just actually had Garrett Prawl on last night on my podcast. That episode's not published yet, but it will be out soon. He did a really good video. I think it came out like mid to late August about stabilizers. And he, you know, Garrett does great content. So he's got like an accelerometer on his bow that maps out um, like a graph of his stability with these different stabilizers on it. And long story short, I think a stabilizer for accuracy, especially when you're getting like 40 yards and beyond is one of the easiest and most inexpensive things a guy can do to improve his accuracy. I run a 12 inch bee stinger with a two ounce weight at the end, which is 
borderline getting clumsy for, for hunting. You know, it's pretty long. It's not like target archery long where you're shooting a 30 inch bar or something, but a lot of guys are running, you know, a six inch stabilizer. That's essentially vibration dampening. I like a longer bar with some weight on it. And then let's see what else is on a bow tight spot quiver. And I shoot, uh, the other thing that I did when I got my new bow set up in 2018 is I went to a thumb release and I'm shooting a stand perfects, which is an adjustable thumb style release. You can adjust the trigger tension. It's got two different size thumb barrels, the thumb or the finger extensions. You can run it as a two finger, three finger, four finger. So it's kind of a customizable modular. I like to describe it as the, the AR 15 of releases, you know, you can customize it to, to however you want. And then for arrows, my arrow setup's pretty simple I'm shooting Eastern axis, uh, five millimeters. I believe I'm shooting 300 spine on those. And I shoot a 50 grain brass insert with 125 grain slick trick broadhead. So nothing fancy. I do recommend uh, cut on contact. I like those. Those just happen to fly well out of my bow. They're relatively cheap. And for whatever reason out here, a lot of tall grass, I, I don't recover a lot of my arrows. So I get pass through shots and then they bury in like, you know, three foot of CRP. And I don't shoot lighted knocks, which maybe I should. I probably should since I'm trying to film, but I don't. And, uh, so I have a real hard time recovering arrows. So I, I, I don't shoot iron wheels or something like that because I don't want to lose a $40 broadhead in the grass. Sure. Yeah. It's funny because like, uh, you know, for your listeners or for whoever, like, um, 2018, um, that is pretty much, uh, with the exception of the site and the rest, the identical setup as, uh, my co-host, and uh, he's on his third bow uh, since that, and that is still by far his favorite bow setup. Um, it, the, I mean, you know, Hoyt RX one carbon tight spot quiver Eastern Axis, and he when we went out west, elk hunting was 125 grain slick tricks, and I know he had just a hair of. Uh, uh, weight up front so i mean you you hear me chuckle during that but i mean i'm <laughs> i'm very familiar with that setup <laughs> yeah and the one thing i guess I, I glossed over there is i think my total arrow weight is right about 480 grains and i know uh the craze is heavier 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 but i wanted to find a setup that was a pretty good compromise all around arrow because i don't want to switch arrows for antelope and elk you know what i mean so yeah. I feel like I feel like with the fixed broadhead, I got enough kinetic energy and momentum to to get through pretty much everything or get deep in everything, uh, while still not shooting a rainbow trajectory. Right? I'm not gonna out west, especially. I'm not shooting a 650 grain arrow because I don't want to have to aim three feet over the antelope that I'm shooting at. Yeah, he's he's very nearly 600 grains, but he's also six foot three shooting full length arrow. So I don't know like what your draw length is or whatever, but I mean, he's, the arrows are going to be heavier regardless. Sure. Sure. So, well, uh, so two, two final questions I got for you. Um, and, and maybe I should have asked these early on, but I think they're important. And I ask pretty much all my guests, these questions. So I'm a real goal oriented person. What drives you as a hunter? Like what, what gets you out in the woods? What makes you do it? I don't know. Um, you know, for me, it's always been like part of our life. You know, I mean, my grandfather was, 
hunting in the UP, you know, somewhat for uh, substance, like back in the depression or like back in the forties or, or whenever. And it's just always been part of our lives. And he was a, a trophy hunter, hunted all over, uh, you know, the world, Africa, Canada, um, a lot out West. Um, and it was all rifle hunting. And then once I got to like, you know, hunt with a bow, it was cool. Um, my family didn't necessarily bow hunt. I was in the Marines and, you know, once you're shooting iron sights at, you know, 500 meters, um, and hitting targets, like shooting animals with a gun doesn't do anything for you. I mean, at 15 yards, I'm shooting, you know, does with a seven mag. It, it just isn't all that exciting. So like bow hunting is one of the things to me that's like the most challenging, you know, you outlined, you know, that, you know, 150 plus deer snort wheezing and, uh, right at the base of your tree or, or, or whatever. And, you know, he's not hanging on the wall. So in that instance, like you're, everything can go a hundred percent right. And you can be within bow range, within proximity and, you know, uh, have it go wrong and you can still feel like somewhat accomplished, but it keeps you coming back for more, you know, and it, it, it seems counterintuitive and especially for anyone who's like an anti hunter or someone who hasn't killed a whole lot of deer. Um, but to, um, pass deer. So when you pass a deer, you've won ultimately, you know, you, you say, well, I let you go, but at the same time you didn't because they could have seen you draw. You could have made a bad shot. Like you could have hit a branch, like all of those things, like everything can go absolutely right and be absolutely wrong at the same time. And, uh, I think that that's probably what keeps me coming back. Yeah. That unknown, I think it's, <laughs> I always describe it as the casino effect, right? Like you never know what's going to happen when you pull that handle kind of the same thing when you're sitting in the tree stand with the bow or, or ground hunting or whatever, like you said, you think, you think, you know, what might happen, but you never really know. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a great, great insight to, to why you hunt. And I think it's important for people to think about that. You know, what like you talked about it earlier on too. What are you getting out of it? What do you want to get out of it? Because you have a lot better experience. I think when you, you've got some end in mind, whatever that is, and that's different for all sorts of people. And, and I always say, Hey, as long as it's illegal, you do whatever you want. Right. And that, and just have fun. It's your tag. Don't worry about anybody else, whatever they're doing, just have fun. And then, uh, I lied two more questions. So second to last question here, what are your goals for this season? I know your season's just around the corner in Michigan. Uh, are, one, are you hunting out of state anywhere? And if you're not, what are your goals for Michigan? And if you are, what are your goals for out of state? Yeah, my season's all twisted up this year. Um, uh, I, I'm going to Colorado. So it's, it's completely against everything that I believe in to some degree. Um, but I'm going to hunt with my father, um, at a spike camp, uh, for elk for the rifle opener. So I'm bringing my bow. I mean, I want to shoot an elk with my bow. Um, but I'm not like an outfitter guy. I've been out West twice elk hunting and, 
been unsuccessful. Seen elk both times. Um, first year, 2018, we were into elk. I had an opportunity for a shot, but I just, it was too, too far, too many variables on, you know, a 300 plus bull, I would say. I mean, I'm not an elk scorer, but I've seen them. Um, Real good bull, though. I mean, so when I would say it was a six by six because it had whale tails. And when he, his head was up uh, bugling, his whale tails were touching like his hindquarters. So that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. And that was at 60 yards, 62 yards. Um, oh, man. And uh, I was basically standing on matchsticks. Um, you know, my partner was calling and all this stuff. And it's public land, Idaho. Um, and it just, I didn't feel comfortable from that position making that shot and you know to add to it like there was like maybe like a one to two foot window that i had to shoot through that was about 30 yards in front of me so like you talked about that rainbow effect like i have a fairly flat shooting setup but at the same time like i don't know where that arrow was going to go you know to to fall right between there halfway between me and the elk so um, I just didn't feel comfortable, uh, making the shot, but yeah. So, um, going out there doing a spike camp, but hunting with my father, which I've not done out West. Um, and he hunted out there with, you know, his dad, not the same camp and all that stuff, but you know, just, and it's a spike camp. So I feel a little bit better. Like it's a little bit more of like me and, uh, just going out there. So, but that's like, October 16th is when that season starts. So I'm leaving here like the 14th. So it's going to be real weird to hunt whitetails and then go hunt elk and then come back to hunt whitetails, like kind of like in the prime. Um, so like goals are, and like to, I, I always say I want to kill something early um, just to be on some deer, just to be out, be in the right spot at the right time to like, I think that for me that that's validation. So like, so saying, okay, I've done my homework. I put myself in a position, um, to kill a deer that I want to kill like in the first week is, or like, you know, first couple sits, um, you know, for me makes it a validation of me being in the right spot at the right time and being able to put all the pieces together. Now that's not always true because, it was the first or second sit that I killed the 100 inch deer in Michigan last year, and it felt very false because it wasn't like my spot. I just went to a spot where I knew there was deer. Yeah, we went in there and scouted. Uh, my father in law missed a deer in there opening day. His buddy tagged out on two bucks there opening day. Um, not the same tree, just the same area, but it, it just didn't feel like my thing. But you talk about like, times a year everything like i've got that spot that i've been scouting like in the rut i know um the dates that are going to be hot so to go in there and even to be in the game um will will validate it like i you know i don't know exactly where to sit it's going to be kind of like changing on the fly and then last year mid-november um i was at full draw on Maybe maybe Pope and Young Deer, probably 115, 120, 125, you know, right in there. Um, last year during the rut, and I could have shot him at 30 yards. And just because of my setup wasn't great, um, 
he, you know, the quintessential one more step and I'd have shot him and yeah. he turned to walk straight away and, you know, went and chasing does and stuff. But like, like I want to be back in there, um, at that time frame because I know what's happening in there. Um, and to shoot something in there would be fine, but I have no like real, like legit solid goals. Um, I have opportunities to go hunt in Ohio and that's, um, that's all going to be predicated on like what I've got going on around here at that time. I've got, I've got the first week of November off. So, um, if I shoot something here early, then I go to Colorado, however that hunt goes, um, you know, it'll just, it'll just depend on weather opportunity, um, that sort of thing. But I, I may end up hunting Ohio, but like I said, my goals are like <laughs> to, to just a hundred percent, like stay in my lane, have fun, go out, try and push myself. And, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, uh, dagger and, uh, Fred and all these deer like penned <laughs> yeah. up where I'm like, man, if I could just get him, like I got him on a pattern, you know, but yeah, it's not like that. Um, it's, I enjoy the process of hunting. I like, I enjoy the suck. I enjoy the game. Um, so, you know, uh, shoot a deer with my bow and, uh, get an opportunity at an elk, um, uh, would be phenomenal. Sounds like super goals to me. And, uh, <laughs> it's stuff that I can relate to, you know, like my discussion earlier, definitely stuff I can relate to have fun, um, stay in your lane that all, that all jives with what I'm doing. And uh, that's not the only way or the right way. It just happens to be what we're doing. There's plenty of other ways. And I'll just reiterate again, if it's illegal, I think you guys, whatever they're doing, whether that's shooting your first deer or whether that's shooting a 200 inch or out of your box blind on your managed farm, I don't care, <laughs> you know, whatever. I got I to gotta disagree there though. Um, just on a sense of like, if you're not having fun, then you're doing it wrong. Um, like yeah. case in point, <laughs> like, yeah. Like you have to have fun. If you, if like, I think you, if you're not having fun, um, you need to, to like really take a step back and do some like soul searching and say, why am I doing this? And what would make it fun? And if what makes it fun is, uh, shooting something big enough that you think it's okay to put on social media, then you might want to reevaluate that. Um, because outside of that, I mean, yeah, like pouring your boots out and being stuck in the middle of nowhere and freezing your balls off, like all that stuff isn't all the time fun, but the process, I mean, that's what gives you perspective to, to go out and do it again and do it better. Um, I think so. Like you need to figure out where you're threshold for fun is i guess yeah and, and the highs aren't as high without the lows of the lows i think right right yeah okay well last question here i uh, really enjoy your content bowhunter chronicles podcast where can people find your podcast and what are your social media accounts oh yeah i mean everything is like bowhunter chronicles podcast so i mean we've got a website bowhunter chronicles podcast.com uh, YouTube Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. And I mean, if you can't find us on, um, 
any podcast platform, like you have to be like in Antarctica because I don't know that we've had any downloads <laughs> from there. But I mean, at one point we were number seven in Romania. So I mean, come on, that you there's your there's your goals. <laughs> yeah, right. <type> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, uh, this is the first time we've actually talked. Uh, you know, audio to audio is instead of texting back and forth or on social media. So really enjoyed the conversation today. Thanks for coming on or maybe I was on your show. We still haven't figured that out, but uh, enjoyed the conversation. A lot of common ground here for sure. And I wish you nothing but the best this season. I'll be following along. Hope to see you with uh, some deer and some elk on your adventures this fall. Yeah. For you, the same thing, like, you know, for you, where can people find your content? And I guess, where would you push them like where do you want people to find you or where do you think is like the best representative of like what you have to offer so podcast uh, as of recently it took me a while because i didn't have a podcast host for a while i was only hosting on youtube so all the podcasts will be on youtube uh now i'm hosting through podbean so you can go directly to podbean but i've also through their service i'm on all the directories now i believe if you can't find me on one let me know but it should be on spotify and apple amazon google iHeartRadio, stitcher all that stuff now um and as far as uh, i do have a website too all this stuff is going for broke outdoors with uh the number four instead of for and the only reason i did that wasn't to be cool it was someone already had a very small channel with the for so i had to use the number four um and and i never really explained the name before i'd just like to use super aggressive tactics and I usually end up like physically destroyed at the end of my hunt. So that's kind of where the name came from was, was going all in going for broke. And a lot of times, you know, an out of state hunt, short stuff, whatever that's, so that's kind of where the origins of the name are at, but yeah, you can find me on all the major podcast platforms, YouTube. I do have a website also the same going for broke outdoors.com. I do some writing on there, which I haven't been getting a ton of traffic on there, but to be expected smaller and unknown, but I do have a couple of good articles about e-scouting, some of the out-of-state hunting, some gear review. So that's kind of the stuff I'm doing on there. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy, and I don't want followers for followers' sake, but if people are outdoors, I really enjoy, uh, and I, I didn't have any social media at all because I was kind of like a, a recluse prior to doing the podcast. So all this stuff was in like the last two years. But I actually, of all the social media stuff, I probably enjoy Instagram the most. And I post there quite often, do stories. So if people want to follow along with like what I'm doing on a, a little more regular basis outside of the podcast, like the hunting stuff, that's probably the best place to find me and, and something that I enjoy the most. So I'm doing a fair amount of stuff on there and, and outside of season, like the shed hunting and all that stuff. Uh, if you ever want to find sheds, Adam, come to Montana. I know you talked to Tim Bunau and, and he found a pile and, and me and my girlfriend found like 75 this spring. So if anyone's looking to shed hunt, uh, if you commit yourself to walking 10 miles in Montana, anywhere that's got terrain, you know, just not the sage flats, you're probably going to find a shed. I think, and I'm not exaggerating, not a maybe like 40 or 50 trips. I think we've been skunked like five or six times. Every other time we found at least one. And our best day this spring, Tim was with us. So me, Tim, and my girlfriend, uh, we found 33 in one day, which is coming from Michigan. Unbelievable. I shed hunted. <laughs> I shot on it pretty regularly in Michigan doing my spring scouting. And I think in eight years I found like four, four or five sheds. So different world out here, Uh different terrain though, too. It makes it easier a lot of times to find them because it's, 
you know, more open country. You can see farther and the sheds don't blend in like they do in cattails or swamp or whatever, but that, uh, getting off track, that's where you can find me on, on social media and, and Instagram is something that I enjoy, but, um, you know, website podcasts, I probably do the least on Facebook. I do have a Facebook page, but hardly any followers and I don't keep up on that too much. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Jeremy, and I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be challenged as the world's worst bow hunter. All right. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll catch up one day and, and settle this dispute for sure. <laughs> awesome. All right. All thanks. right.